card for Ellie and Sally, and thinking about what sort of greeting could I find. I was hoping for something of depth, and so I surveyed uh, the greeting cards, the Hallmark cards at my local Woolworths here in Hornsby, uh, and uh, well, I was somewhat disappointed. Uh, the first one I came across said the following, ever, 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 congrats on your four evers. Uh, I thought after that, uh, sort of pun, I'd move to the birthdays section to see if I could find something a bit more profound, a bit deeper, especially for you. Although this birthday note is bringing wishes for today, you know it hopes that happiness will always come your way, not looking too promising. I did find one that made me chuckle, though. It said uh, the following. It said, being one day older only matters if you're a banana. And I thought, that's true. That is true. Uh, We live in a culture that doesn't really put a lot of thought or depth into our greetings. They tend to be superficial, like Hallmark cards. And so when we come to read greetings, we can be tempted to skip over them and move on to other and deeper things. Well, today we start a new series on 1 Peter, and we're going to be examining the opening verses, which couldn't be more different. This is a rich feast of great depth for us this morning and really sets the direction for the rest of this series and the rest of the letter. Today is the first of uh, roughly 25 messages we're going to be doing on this letter. And so we're going to read and prepare our hearts now to hear from God in His Word. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to First Peter. It's right after the letter of James. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would we pray? Lord Jesus, we come before your throne this morning as weak vessels prone to wander, prone to distraction, prone to captivation by self-interest. Lord, you know I feel it. Lord, as we examine these words, your words, would you now, through the gift of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you and to be changed by you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week uh, in our local paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, I stumbled across the following article by Bevan Shields. Uh, Bevan writes the following in an article entitled, Church's Abhorrent Therapy Has No Place in This State. Bevan writes, Quite unexpectedly, the issue of church versus state has entered the New South Wales state election campaign. 
focusing attention on the Perite government's continuing hardline stance against addressing the atrocious practice of so-called gay conversion therapy. Australian states and territories, including Victoria, Queensland, and the ACT, have moved to ban practices aimed at changing or suppressing the sexuality or gender identity of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, asexual, or gender and sexually diverse LGBTQ people. Legislation is also under preparation in Western Australia. However, the practice remains legal in New South Wales. Uh, Bevan goes on. Religion-based conversion therapy is most common and includes counselling for sexual brokenness, prayer, scripture reading, fasting, retreats, and spiritual healing. Larger mainstream churches have struck a balance between tradition and contemporary life, leaving the bulk of gay conversion therapy hidden in evangelical churches and ministries, often taking the form of prayer groups, counseling disguised as pastoral care, or exorcisms. You know, as a Christian, there's something about articles like this that make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, you can feel the anger directed our way. Now, it's worth saying any idea of Christians attempting to force someone to change their sexuality is completely opposed to the way of Christ. God is in the business of changing people's hearts, and God doesn't promise to give us a certain set of sexual desires. He calls us all on the path of self-denial as we follow Jesus. Christians shouldn't make promises either that God doesn't promise. That's unhelpful. But notice what Bevan says in the article. Conversion therapy here isn't strapping someone to a chair and forcing them to change their sexual preference. No, conversion therapy is things like prayer. Bible reading, counseling, and prayer groups. Conversion therapy here is actually standard Christian practices. As Stephen McAlpine in his recent book, Being the Bad Guys, puts it this way. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. The cultural, political, and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us. And it's happened quickly. The number of those professing faith has fallen dramatically. The number of those who reject the faith they held until their late teens has risen dramatically. The seat at the cultural table that we assumed was ours for keeps is increasingly being given to others. We're on the wrong side of history. The wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western... We would be the guys wearing the black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it, and we don't feel like we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. Isn't it true? We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. We are the bad guys now. And the fruit is that increasingly we don't feel like we fit here culturally. We feel misunderstood. And there's never been more criticism of the Bible in our culture at the same time as there's never been fewer people that have read it. And the fruit is that whereas we might have once felt at home in our Aussie culture, we increasingly feel like foreigners. And if that's you... 
You're going to love this series in First Peter. I think God has much to say to us on this topic. If you take notes this morning, I've entitled this message, We're Not Home Yet. I've got three points we're going to be looking at as we set up this series, but really one hope for us this morning, which is really to see that we have been chosen to be foreigners in this world, sustained by His grace. God has chosen and appointed us to be His foreigners in this place, sustained by His grace. You could put it another way uh, to say that this book, this letter, First Peter, is a kind of traveler's guide for Christians as they pass through life awaiting a glorious future with Christ. Well, we're going to dive right into uh, this series as we start with point number one, which is simply the author. Because to help us understand this letter, we first need to meet its author, who we encounter in the very first opening word, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Our author, Peter, was one of the 12 disciples and, in fact, part of Jesus' inner circle of, of Peter, James, and John. But he didn't start there. He underwent a radical transformation. The first glimpse we have of the apostle Peter is early on in the Gospels where he's introduced as a fisherman living in a small town of Capernaum in Galilee. And Mark writes the following in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says, of Jesus, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. You see, Simon and Andrew were brothers working ordinary jobs, and they encountered the Lord Jesus and were completely transformed. Uh, Simon, or Peter, becoming a spokesman for the rest of the disciples. Yes, Simon is given the name Peter by Jesus. Uh, The name means rock. Petros in Greek, or Cephas in Aramaic. And Jesus says he will build his church upon this rock, this man, the Apostle Peter. That's a huge claim. It's remarkable because Peter was never formally trained in the law. He was, according to Acts chapter 4, unschooled and ordinary, to the amazement of those looking on. In the Gospels, it's doubtful time and time again that Peter can, in fact, live up to his name as the rock. Time and time again, it seems that Peter is not up to the task. He rebukes the Lord, not once, but twice. Generally a bad idea to rebuke the Lord Jesus. He falls asleep in the garden. He attacks the high priest's servant Malchus and chops off his ear. And he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. But Jesus, at the end of John's gospel, reinstates him and communicates his confidence in him and his selection of him to be one of the founding pillars of the early church. And in the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, we encounter Peter again as a completely transformed man. Luke portrays him as a bold proclaimer of the gospel. He he portrays him as a miracle worker as a leading figure in the early church, the first missionary to the Gentiles and a missionary to Jews outside of Jerusalem. And when Peter writes this first letter of his from Rome, it's likely around AD 62 or 63, about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. He describes his location cryptically as Babylon right at the very end of the letter, a symbol of the place of exile, the exile of God's people, the Babylonian Empire. 
um, therefore symbolizing the Roman Empire, the center of the Roman Empire. It's likely written before the persecution that happened under Nero and Peter's death in Rome, but after the release of Paul from his first imprisonment in Rome. And therefore, this letter and the, the, both the letters of Peter were written near the end of his life. And we can imagine Peter in Rome, perhaps because of the choice, the veiled choice of the description of Babylon, um, suggesting that he's in hiding, perhaps faced with persecution, but ministering to the church and pausing to pen this letter. But there's an even greater significance to Peter's authorship of this letter. He begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a technical word in the Bible for the first disciples of Jesus who had witnessed his life and his death and his resurrection and had received a special authority to represent him. See, Peter is an authoritative messenger of Jesus and an authoritative interpreter of his message, of his good news, of the gospel. And so we read in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and what as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Someone who has seen it firsthand, Peter says. Again, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though you haven't seen him, implying, but I have seen him. And therefore been commissioned to speak for him. See, Peter is fully aware that he's been appointed by the Lord Jesus as a foundation stone for his church and to represent him. And so he ends this letter with the following. By Silvanus, or Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is an authoritative and true description of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Rely on it, says the Apostle Peter. This is the inspired word of the one true God. Live by it, says the Apostle Peter. You know, last week we saw the incredible treasure we have in God's word. Like that Chin Dynasty vase that was worth a fortune but used as a goalpost and as a doorstop. And we saw last week our temptation to take these words and kind of leave them on the shelf, to not value them or treasure them. Well, Peter knew that what he was writing to these Christians was God's word. And so he encourages them in verse 23 of chapter 1, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. See, Peter, according to Peter, the the word of the gospel is like a plant growing inside of you, changing you from the inside out, producing incredible fruit. And so he's writing to encourage these Christians. He's writing to encourage us to stand firm in this true word. And so as we begin this series, would we see that this is the authoritative word of God? penned by the Lord Jesus' chosen representative, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the true grace of God. You know, there's going to be times when we will intuitively feel 
uncomfortable with what we read in this letter. We'll be telling ourselves things like, potentially, I'm not sure if this is for me. Peter's going to be uh, touching on sensitive topics like gender and how you treat your boss and how you endure suffering and how you relate to authority, a particular challenge for Aussies. And we need to remember that these words are for us. God is speaking. God is opening his mouth and addressing us. Which makes us incredibly hopeful as we go about this series in God's word. This imperishable seed, this is living plant, abiding word of God is going to, is able to transform us just like it did for the Apostle Peter. And that's our first point, the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter. But not just our first point, our second point we need to understand is not just the author, but the recipient as well. It's important to understand who was this letter written to. Let's read again uh, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All these lists of place names that you've read in this passage are actually in an area known as Asia Minor, which are mostly in modern-day Turkey. You'll see it up on the screen. The order that Peter lists these regions kind of forms a circular pattern and likely represents the route that Silas was instructed to take this letter around for distribution. It's different from other letters in the Bible in that this was written as a kind of circular for general distribution among Christians and churches scattered across a region roughly the size of New South Wales. In the first century, this this part, this place in modern-day Turkey was actually a rural backwater of the empire. Uh, There were diverse people groups that lived here. It was incredibly different and diverse geography from mountains to valleys, desert to coastal, and wetlands as well. And similarly, the majority of the people that Peter is writing to are not Jewish converts to Christianity but non-Jewish or Gentile converts. And we read that in multiple places in the letter. Uh, Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for, or perhaps better, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. He's talking about a people who used to practice the same things as Gentiles do. So much so that now that they've been transformed by Jesus, people are kind of puzzled and surprised and malign them because they don't participate in the things they once did. Again, Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You know, the Old Testament testimony is described as lots of things, but one thing it cannot be described as is futile ways. These are people that have come from pagan religion and philosophy to worship Jesus. Again, Peter says, Once you were not a people, chapter 2, verse 10, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Before the grace of God was poured out on their lives, they were a random collection of people spread out across a huge region of little importance to the empire. Now they've been brought together as one people, God's precious people. But there are two crucially important words in this first verse that really get to the heart of Peter's message to these scattered Christians. Let's read the first part of verse 1 again. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles. The word here, exile, is Perepidemus in the first century Greek that was written in. Uh, At the time, it referred to someone who did not hold citizenship in the place they resided, especially in the empire. It refers to someone who is a foreigner. Not a citizen means not having the rights of a citizen. You know, I find myself talking to uh, many new migrants. In fact, in this church, many of us are relatively new migrants to this country, and you will be familiar with the experience of not being a citizen. Uh, you can often find yourself unsure whether or not you'll be able to renew your visa. You find yourself having to pay for things that are free for everyone else, like public schools. You don't get uni fee help. You can't vote. You may not be eligible for Medicare. Foreigners also often don't hold the same values and practices and customs of those around them. And as a result, foreigners can sometimes be expected to be viewed with Suspicion, or perhaps as subversive to the culture of those around them. Well, what makes these Christians foreigners? Well, it's not because they're a specific class of people who are literally foreigners. It's a letter for general circulation on a huge area. It's likely that many of the recipients, in fact, had been born and raised in their regions, even multiple generations of ancestors living in the same place. It's not because they had traveled from a different region of the empire. No, that was the normal practice in the Roman Empire. And it's not because they were of a specific ethnicity. These are not Jewish people. There's every indication, as we've seen, that these were, in fact, pagan Gentiles. Tom Schreiner explains it this way. He says, Believers are exiles not because they're displaced from their homeland. Many people in the Greco-Roman world no longer lived in their place of origin. Believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. Isn't that the case? These Christians were foreigners, not because they were from a different place, but because their faith was off-putting and was strange to those around them. You know, writing from Rome, Peter must have felt acutely of just how off-putting and strange his faith seemed to those around him. To worship a condemned criminal who was publicly shamed and tortured. To refuse to partake in the many pagan festivals and free living of their neighbors. To risk, therefore, upsetting the gods with their godlessness in in their fixation on just one God. Their obsession with service and humility, despising the values of the day of strength and honor. Desperately strange and 
off-putting for the average person in the empire. And the result? That he would soon be executed in Rome. Why? For following Jesus. But Christians are not just foreigners. They are chosen foreigners. Foreigners according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God in his wisdom has chosen his people to be pilgrims, to be travelers, to be foreigners, even in their own homelands. See, God has called us into his service and made us citizens of his heavenly people, his heavenly kingdom. And the consequence is that we follow Christ in a foreign land. Edmund Clowney, in his uh, wonderful commentary, puts it this way. He says, these terms give us the key to Peter's whole letter. Peter is writing a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. He reminds them that their hope is anchored in their homeland. They are called to endure alienation as strangers, but they have a heavenly citizenship and destiny. You know, I was reminded of this uh, just two weeks ago, speaking to a member of this church. And they were describing their workplace that profoundly supports and celebrates everything to do with Pride Month and the LGBT plus uh, movement. And the pressure that they feel in the workplace to conform to this. They described how uh, a couple of weeks ago they had been uh, called into a meeting at the office. Uh, a meeting of colleagues who said to them, Oh, look, you're a Christian. Do you hate this person? and this person, and this person, and this person, right in front of their gathered colleagues. I wonder how you would feel to be placed in that situation. Do you feel that sense of being a foreigner in your own country? Do you perhaps even hide your faith because you're acutely aware that your values are viewed with suspicion, even antagonism? You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, this is not your home. God has purchased you as his own and given you a new culture and a new values. As Christians, we are pilgrims passing through this life. We have a strange new culture, a gospel culture, and a message about a new king. Our mission is not the rat race. It is not building up wealth. It is representing our king and his purposes as we love and serve those around us between now and when he calls us home. We're not at home in this world. We are called to live as foreigners in a place where we will never truly be embraced. We're called to join God's people throughout history who have lived life as pilgrims, as not at home in this world. That's the story of the Bible, friends. It starts even in Genesis. God called Abraham out of the city of Ur to wander Canaan. And after his wife Sarah died in his old age, he told the Hittites what? He said, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Later in Genesis, we meet Jacob as an elderly man before Pharaoh, who confessed to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, The years of my sojourning have been few and evil. In Egypt, God's people were exploited as slaves. Why? Because they were foreigners and the people were afraid of them. God rescued his people from Egypt to where? 
to wander the wilderness for 40 years, being taught and guided by God, their path in the wilderness laid before them by Him. The pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Israel's later betrayal of God in the kingdom earned his judgment and punishment and he removed them from their own land to be what? To be foreigners in Babylon. That's what this word, the dispersion, means. It's the word diaspora, a technical word for the way in which God's people were spread out across the globe after the Babylonians invaded them as God's punishment. And the prophets promised that the Lord would once more march his people back through the wilderness of their exile, preparing for them a new highway, a way of the Lord himself. Until we read the words on the lips of our Lord Jesus, who says this in John 14, verse 1, he says, tapping into this rich history, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, listen to this, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am your path of pilgrimage. I am your way in the desert. That way is me. And that's exactly what he did. He lived a life of faithfulness to God. He was never at home in the world. He says himself, Luke 9, 58, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The meaning? Even animals have a home in this world, but I do not. He was rejected by his own people. He was mocked and cast out of his own city. He was crucified. His death upon the cross, he was taking our punishment. And he opened the door to God's magnificent household, our true home. And he has ascended and he is preparing a place for us in the coming kingdom of God. And before that day arrives though, we are foreigners in a world opposed to God. But commissioned by the Lord Jesus to represent him. And just like these recipients, we are not at home in this world but chosen by God to be foreigners, passing through as we travel the way of Christ. That's point number two, the recipients. But lastly, our final point, point number three, not just the author, the recipients, but lastly, the fuel for the journey. You know, if anything like me, this idea of being a foreigner in this world, being called to follow Jesus in a world that rejects Jesus, gives you a little bit of sweaty palms. And you got that feeling of being a little bit nervous, a little bit intimidated, and and wondering, what is faithfulness to Christ going to cost me in the future? What will it cost my children in the future? Will it affect my career prospects? Will I lose friendships? Will I lose respect? Will I even face persecution or even prosecution for my faith? And the question arises in our mind is, 
How can we possibly face life following Jesus in a world opposed to Jesus? Well, friends, we've got a wonderful series ahead as we unpack this travel guide for Christian pilgrims. The best is yet to come, friends, as we look to God's Word. We have a glorious future, living hope with Christ. But even more than this, there's wonderful fuel for the journey contained in this, these first two verses as well. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, Peter makes it clear that it is the grace of the triune God that has called them out as foreigners and will therefore sustain them to the end. He pauses to highlight the activity of each person of the Trinity in their calling. First of all, he highlights the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter explains that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was known before the world was founded in verse 20 of chapter 1. And in this verse, Peter uses the exact same word to explain God's foreknowledge of these scattered Christians. Friends, this morning, I've been pondering a question for us to consider as we begin this series. Do you realize that the God who spoke the world into creation in Genesis 1, billions and billions of years ago in the past, That as he spoke, he was thinking of you. He knew the most intimate details of your life. Details of your past. Details of your present. Details of things you are yet to see. Before you had done a single thing that could earn his favor, he saw you and he loved you. It is the foreknowledge of the Father whose heart is revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And He has called you into His service. You're an object of His completely free grace in and through our Lord Jesus. See, friends, if you're nervous about your calling, allow that truth to wash over you. He will empower you. But secondly, not just the foreknowledge of the Father, but Secondly, in the sanctification of the Spirit. You know, often when we talk about sanctification, we mean that kind of gradual process of growing to be more like Jesus. But this is actually talking about our initial conversion, our call to be his foreigners in the first place. You see, we didn't come to trust in the Lord Jesus because we were smart enough or we were, we were actually spiritually dead. But God the Father sent his Holy Spirit that softened our heart to come to trust in Christ. You see, if God has caused you to trust in the Lord Jesus, can any opposition from our culture cause you to fall away and lose it? The answer is absolutely not. You might as well ask, can the world stand in the way of the one true living God? You know, we can walk through this life with confidence because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Secondly, not just in the sanctification of the Spirit, but thirdly, for, or perhaps resulting in, obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. 
You know, this idea of sprinkling with his blood is a reference to a special ceremony recorded in Exodus chapter 24 in our Bibles. God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He had given them his law and he had entered into a special relationship with them. They would be his people. And so Moses gathers all the people together and they sacrifice these oxen to the Lord. And Moses takes two bowls of the blood from these oxen and he takes one bowl and he sprinkles it over the altar. And then he reads God's word before all the people and the people respond like this. It says that, they say that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses then takes the remainder of the blood and he sprinkles it over all the people. Imagine being there, it would be kind of gross in a way, wouldn't it? The blood pouring down on you, on your clothes and on your face and on your hair. This was a special ceremony in which Israel formally became God's people and entered into a special agreement with him. And so to these scattered Christians on the edge of the empire who felt misunderstood, who were persecuted, who were opposed, Peter wants to reassure them, you are fully part of God's people through the blood of Jesus. You may feel forgotten. You may feel misunderstood, but you are not. You are and always will be his. You have forever been marked with the blood of Jesus. Not by your ethnicity, not by your performance, not by the location in which you live, but the sprinkled blood of our matchless Savior. See, Peter's confidence in God's sustaining grace wasn't misplaced. God's grace did indeed sustain Christians living throughout this region. And how do we know this? History testifies to a radical transformation that took place. The transformation or the transformative work this letter achieved is well documented. This was a largely rural backwater at the time Peter is writing. This was a frontier outpost of the Roman Empire, but it became the center of the early church. You've probably heard of the Council of Nicaea. Well, it was penned in the Bithynian city of Nicaea. You've probably heard of the Council of Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian Creed. It was penned in the Bithynian city of Chalcedon. You may have heard of the Cappadocian Fathers. Cappadocian produced uh, these men, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus. Some of the greatest teachers in church history came from this place. You see, the seed of the word continued to take root and grow and grow and grow as it does today. And so let's step into our study of 1 Peter with confidence that God will also equip us to live faithfully for him as his chosen foreigners. You know, as I close this message, I want to return to that story I shared earlier of that person feeling the heat of their faith in Christ at work, being pulled before a group of their colleagues to be asked, you're a Christian, do you hate all of these people? And feeling that sense of nervousness rise um, as we even consider facing a similar situation. But I withheld an important part of that story. Because in fact, God's grace was at work in her life. She was able to express the truth that as a Christian, she is called by God to love all people. Because all people are made in his image. 
And that as a Christian, she believes she's made with a purpose and that God has a purpose for us in our gender, in our identities, to live and please him. But also pause to thank them for being such a wonderful workplace that embraces and welcomes and includes uh, minority faiths such as hers into that workplace. And she contacted me praising God for the way he had helped her to honor the Lord and the beautiful conversations that had come out of that. Friends, we've been chosen to be foreigners in this world and we will be sustained by his grace. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of knowing Christ and being his servants. And Lord, although we feel the heat in various ways of our culture as it rejects you and as it rails against you, Lord, we want to pause and express this morning our confidence, not in ourselves, but in your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to equip us and help us. Thank you, Lord, that as we enter into schools and workplaces and homes where you are not honored, that your spirit goes with us. Thank you, Lord, that we never have to walk this journey alone because we're part of a family, your people, and you are present in our midst. Lord, help us honor Christ as foreigners, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.